Today from the Global Lane, Israelis storm their parliament, demanding freedom for the remaining Gaza hostages. Is a permanent truce in the war with Hamas now imminent? There's, that's not a possibility. It's not what the overwhelming majority of Israelis want. It's incompatible with the goals of this government to allow Hamas to emerge from this war as the victors. Greta Thunberg gets political over Gaza. Anti-Israel rhetoric splinters the climate change movement. Climate justice on occupied land. College courses without final exams. Gen Z embraces mediocrity on campus. These colleges are telling Gen Z students that they cannot, that they can get away with not trying to be their best selves, not having to strive for excellence. It's not Buffalo, the American city that gets the most snow and the high cost of removing the white stuff. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Israel is still hoping to reach a negotiated deal with Hamas to free the remaining hostages. They're proposing a two-month ceasefire. Hamas says any ceasefire must be permanent. So who's holding the upper hand here as Israeli citizens storm their parliament, demanding the release of hostages? Well, here with more is Jonathan Tobin. He's editor-in-chief of Jerusalem News Service and senior contributor for The Federalist. He's also the host of the Top Story podcast. Jonathan, will Israel agree to a permanent truce, ending the war without destroying Hamas? What do you see happening? There's no way that will happen. There's just, that's not a possibility. It's not what the overwhelming majority of Israelis want. It's incompatible with the goals of this government. Um, indeed, I don't think any government, no matter who was the head of it, whether it was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu or some possible replacement among the opposition, and that's not happening anytime soon, would ever agree to allow Hamas to emerge from this war as the victors. Um, now, it's true that there is pressure on the government to somehow do something to save the remaining hostages. Um, we all understand this. I mean, it's a democracy. People speak up. Um, there's tremendous sympathy for the hostages. And um, Netanyahu is personally, un is personally unpopular, bears some responsibility for the outbreak of the war because Israel was unprepared. But we should not mistake the pressure that is being put on him which is you know, not dissimilar to things we've seen in other countries, even here in the United States. Remember the pressure that was put on President Ronald Reagan to ransom hostages from the Iranians, if we can go back that far in history. Um, he will not agree to a solution that will allow Hamas to emerge unscathed from this. And if they are still standing in, in control of any part of, of Gaza, they will be the victors of this war. They will have been rewarded for the crimes of October 7th. And that is something that neither Netanyahu nor really the overwhelming majority of Israelis will possibly countenance. Well, uh, let's talk some more about that because Prime Minister Netanyahu has pledged to destroy Hamas, as you mentioned. But at this point, only a reported 30 percent of Hamas fighters have been killed. None of the main leaders is destroying Hamas realistic. How likely is a shift in Israeli sentiment about this war and its goals? I, I think, you know, there's a certain amount of pressure being put on Israel, not just from the hostage families, but from the Biden administration and from its uh, willing accomplices and cheer, cheerleading section in the liberal media. Hence, we have articles in places like The New York Times where Israeli generals are quoting and saying, oh, we can never win. It's impossible. Um, you know, this is all part of an operation basically to save Biden 
not to save the hostages, because Biden wants this war over. It's it's bad for him politically. Um, he, you know, it, this isn't the situation he wants to be in, and therefore, and he's always wanted to topple Netanyahu. So that's the context with which we should view uh, these these sorts of sentiments. Now, of course, the war is far from over. Um, the government has said that. The military has said it. And in part, it's far from over because of the pressure being put in the United States. Israel has moved very cautiously. It has tried everything it can to avoid uh, civilian casualties, including endangering its own troops, which is why the casualty toll among Israeli uh, soldiers has been high. Um, you know, if they really wanted to just go in and flatten the place, they would have flattened the place without risking any of their soldiers. Instead, they are risking their soldiers to go in to these um, very congested areas. You know, Hamas, with international aid money, built a, a tunnel system that is bigger than the New York subway system underneath Gaza. What comes after the war? I know the Biden administration is pushing a two-state solution, but uh, we heard uh, earlier uh, last week, actually, uh, from former Yasser Arafat uh, aide, Tasir Sada, he's pushing some Israeli partners uh, to uh, go with the idea of a one-state uh, federation, which would uh, include Palestinians in the West Bank, but not Gaza. So how much support is there for that idea? What do you think, one state, two? Both of those ideas are non-starters. The two-state solution is dead. The idea that Israel would allow Palestinian statehood and sovereignty and a military next to them after what happened on October 7th, Gaza, you know, under Hamas, was an advertisement for what happens when you have a two-state solution. As far as this one-state solution stuff, uh, diluting, making it not a Jewish state, Israel doesn't want that. A two-state solution theoretically is a good idea in the distant future when a sea change in Palestinian political culture has, has occurred in which they're no longer committed to the destruction of Israel. But we're nowhere near that yet. And until the Palestinians change, this isn't going to happen. Gaza security will be the responsibility of Israel after this war. There is no alternative to it. The United States won't do it, nor would we, nor does Israel want them to. The Arab states won't step in to police it. The only way to prevent more Hamas terrorism or the Fatah, the so-called moderate Palestinians, from doing their thing, because remember, the Palestinian Authority is paying pensions to the October 7th murderers as well as all other Palestinian terrorists. Um, this isn't going to happen. So this is merely a Biden fantasy floated in order to ease his political uh, dilemma because left-wing Democrats are pressuring him to pressure Israel. A little bit different than Ukraine. Uh, no one's talking peace there and pushing them to that. Okay. No, indeed, it's a very yeah. different thing. Yeah, it sure is. Okay, Jonathan Tobin, Jerusalem News Service Editor-in-Chief, thank you for sharing those insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. A growing divide in the global climate change movement. During a recent rally in Amsterdam, climate activist Greta Thunberg got into a tussle with another activist who was upset she included anti-Israel rhetoric in her speech. The people in power have not been listening. I have come here for a climate demonstration, not a political view. Justice on occupied land. No climate justice on occupied land. 
Joining us with more is Jewish climate journalist, Young Voices commentator, Ethan Brown. Ethan hosts the Sweaty Penguin podcast. Ethan, good to talk with you again. So tell us more about this Greta Thunberg moment. Uh, was this just one guy who was upset, or were others at the rally also expressing disgust over her political stance? I think this is representative of a larger trend in the climate movement where we're seeing lots of activists and prominent figures, even some world leaders, using climate rallies, climate conferences as a platform to bash Israel. Now, I'm a Jewish climate commentator. I am my heart's broken for uh, both Gazans and Israelis who are innocent, who have died in this war. It's been a very difficult and emotional time, not to mention Israeli hostages. But I felt that to bring climate into it and link the two, you need to do so very deliberately and accurately and constructively. And that's not what's happening right now. Well, so was this Greta incident in Amsterdam an isolated one? Or are we seeing this kind of thing happen, political division elsewhere within the climate movement over the Israel-Hamas war? We've seen several instances. I know the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade was disrupted due to uh, people shouting uh, liberation for Palestine and planets. Uh, even at the UN Climate Conference this last December, uh, world leaders from Turkey and South Africa got up and used the climate conference as a platform to talk about Israel. And again, I, I fully respect that other people might have different views from myself. I'd like to think mine are pretty nuanced, but to use climate as a platform to express those views and to link them inaccurately, that's what I have an issue with. Well, why is this being linked? I, I know, so you believe this is an intentional effort to meld climate change and anti-Israel activism. So who's doing it and why? There's been a few uh, reasons discussed among these folks for why the two are linked. Uh, one has been... Uh, claim that Israel is trying to steal Palestinian fossil fuels through this war. This, of course, is not true. It was unprovoked. Israel is trying to free hostages. But the fossil fuels they're talking about are offshore gas leases 80 miles west of Haifa in the Mediterranean Sea. This is nowhere near any Palestinian territory. Uh, I've also seen uh, claims that Israel is making it illegal for Palestinians to collect rainwater. This is sort of true. There's difficult permitting regulations in Israel due to the fact that they view water as public property. Um, this has led some officials to discriminately deny permits for Palestinians, uh, which is a big problem, but different from how they're explaining it. I've even seen stuff about carbon emissions from the war, which is a little misleading. The carbon emissions in Gaza have been like a few hundred thousand tons of carbon as opposed to 150 million in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So th there's a lot of these different things, right? And I think they're being presented in a misleading and sometimes inaccurate way. Well, do you think there's anti-Semitism in the climate change movement? There could be. I think it's it's been difficult and, quite frankly, emotional for me over the last few months as someone who's Jewish to see a lot of the reaction to this stuff. I always try to assume the best in people, that people don't have hate in their heart because of my ethnicity and religion. But at the same time, I think a lot of the rhetoric does cross into that. So whether it's uh, due to ignorance or actually intentional, uh, yeah, I think you could say that. Well, you have your climate change purists 
And then those who want to be a part of the newest thing, the latest protest, right? So what does this mean then for the future of the climate change movement? I think it remains to be seen that there are some wonderful people out there who are Jewish climate activists or even, for example, I traveled to Israel last year. I got to meet a Palestinian professor, Tarek Abu Hamed, who uh, I got to interview in an episode of The Sweaty Penguin. He's working with the Arava Institute in Israel to bring Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians together on climate solutions. And that type of peace building is really what gives me a lot of inspiration. So I hope that people can look to efforts like that, look for the bridge builders, and hopefully that's where the climate movement can go. Okay, keeping it positive. And where can we uh, look at your podcast? Where do we find that? Yeah, you can find The Sweaty Penguin at thesweatypenguin.com or all over social media. Um, you can also find myself at Ethan Brown 5151 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, the name suggests it's a podcast that blends climate and comedy. So that's what we're about. Okay, Young Voices commentator Ethan Brown, host of the Sweaty Penguin Podcast. Thank you, Ethan, for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Settling for less at American colleges and universities. Our next guest believes U.S. institutions of higher learning are enabling entitlement and Gen Z mediocrity. For example, for the spring semester, Rice University is offering students Afrochemistry, a course about iniquities in chemistry. The course has no final exam to determine if students have learned the material. Well, joining us with more is Dr. Zachary Marshall. He's editor-in-chief at Campus Reform's Leadership Institute. Okay, Dr. Marshall, what do you think about this course at Rice and foregoing final examinations? I'm not surprised that they decided not to have a final examination. This is just a continuation of the trend we've been seeing for years now in higher education, where there's a collusion between students and between uh, radical professors that say, we don't care about whether our assignments are on time. We don't care about grades being too difficult or assignments being too difficult. Let's give you all A's and let's also cancel assignments or tests when you're feeling trauma. So this is just a logical extension of what's been happening now for the last five to 10 years. Well, everybody gets a trophy, right? So is, exactly. it, is this a trend that is happening at universities nationwide? You said it is a trend, but this lowering of standards for graduation. If so, why are they doing that? They're doing it because for the last five or so years now, we have seen a agenda on college campuses to connect virtues such as timeliness, whether you can submit an assignment um, on time, uh, the idea of correct answers, whether you know the two plus two equals four being an objective truth, and the idea of productivity, all being products of white supremacy. And so when you have students who are want to get away with you know doing the least they can, and professors who have an axe to grind against white people and against American exceptionalism come together, they're going to erase standards and erase uh, traditional grading conventions and also do whatever they can to make college less resemble a place for learning and act more like a sleepaway camp with great dorms and great cafeterias. Well, is this a DEI effect? Is that that's what we're seeing here then? 
Yes, it's all part of DEI um, at Campus Reform. We've been covering how DEI affects every aspect of college life. So we see it not only in the student experience, but also in the classroom. We have seen um, in the name of equity and inclusion, students berate their professors for not canceling um, or adjusting assignments or tests during the George Floyd riots uh, for failing too many of them or not giving them all A's. We reported last year that uh, students at the new school in New York City demanded that everyone get an A in the course as part of their larger grievances against the university. So this is all part of the delusion that's um, on college campuses that to excel is to get A's as easily as possible. Well, how about some other campuses? How about universities like Harvard, uh, Stanford, elsewhere? Um, Stanford has been the center of a lot of student activism and uh, great inflation and uh, pushback against rigorous academic standards. And we're also seeing it at NYU where a professor got fired for failing too many students who did not know the material. Well, Zachary, why does it matter then? What can be done about this? What colleges need to do is to reinsert um, standards and morality back into the um, campus experience. And it really is a moral and virtuous issue because what uh, higher education right now is doing is teaching Gen Z, which I, you know, my Fox News op-ed, I've said is, you know, championing their own mediocrity. Um, these colleges are telling Gen Z students that they cannot, that they can get away with not trying to be the best selves, not having to strive for excellence. On an individual level, this is how we cultivate virtue and how we grow as people. And collectively, when we all strive for the best we can do, that is how uh, we've you know, ensured American greatness through different generations. So it's important that uh, universities ban and repeal these DEI and woke policies that allow great inflation and allow student bullying of administrators and professors to continue. And what's the consequence for the country if they do not do that? We're already seeing it right now. Higher education is becoming more and more irrelevant. We're seeing companies and state governments uh, say we don't care about four-year degrees anymore because they are not teaching uh, students how to be successful members of the workforce or successful members of society. So the consequence is going to be a generation of leaders in the not too distant future of people who do not know how to handle adversity, who do not understand that you know success requires intermittent failure along the way. So we're going to see less ingenuity, less productivity, and less resolve in our culture. And that's something we cannot um, have if we want to you know, keep American excellence and keep that you know, tradition of um, attainment and achievement in our society. Much of the United States is experiencing a warm-up this week, but so far, 2024 has been cold and snowy. A week of winter storms left at least 90 people dead and others freezing without electricity. A Milwaukee, Wisconsin woman used her gas oven for heat. So many families are out of heat. These poor children, these poor babies are going to get pneumonia. Then there's the challenge of removing the snow, in some places a lot of it, off roofs, roads, driveways, and sidewalks. You may think people in Buffalo have the most snow to remove, but it's not the snowiest American city. Of cities with 10,000 or more people, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan receives the most snow. 
On average, it gets 119.3 inches of snow annually. That's just under 10 feet. In second place, Syracuse, New York at 114.3 inches. And Juneau, Alaska is number three with an average snowfall of 93.6 inches annually. And getting rid of all that snow is costly for the average homeowner. According to Lawn Love, that's a national lawn care service company, the average cost for snow blowing, shoveling, or plowing ranges from $25 to $100 per hour. Of course, it depends on the size of the job and location, location, location. According to Angie, formerly Angie's List, on average in the United States, you'll pay $200 if you hire someone to clear your snow. So you say you'd prefer to do it yourself. Okay, if you spend more than an hour shoveling, you may hurt your back. So the money you save from not hiring someone else to do it may end up in the pocket of your local chiropractor or family physician. And if you want to save yourself that aggravation, you could purchase a snowblower. The average price for that in the U.S. is just under $1,000. But if you have an average-sized driveway, you usually only get several inches of snow, you could purchase something like the Toro 21-inch, 212cc engine, steel-framed, 721R power clear snowblower. But like everything, you'll pay more for it than when Biden first came into office. The price tag in January 2021 $589. Today, $699. That's $110 more. You say you're growing tired of the snow? Well, from January 13th through the 18th, folks in West Seneca, New York, that's just southeast of Buffalo, received 74.8 inches of snow. That's more than six feet. You may not want to lecture them about global warming. Maybe some folks in West Seneca and in the greater Buffalo area are thinking about joining the 300,000 people who moved to Florida last year. Florida receives the least amount of snow annually in the continental U.S., 0.01 inches. Or you could do like I've done, move to coastal Virginia. We have yet to receive any significant snowfall here, no accumulation. But it is still possible. We have just under two months left of winter, so let's pray the nation is spared from additional zero-degree temperatures, power outages, and storm-related deaths. So let's do what we can to help a neighbor in need and look to God for protection and to bring calm in the midst of the blizzards and life storms. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Rumble, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.